Thank you for tuning in to Kineticast. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Today we have Patrick McKeown, the author of The Oxygen Advantage, on to talk about how breathing can affect athletic performance, tissue healing, asthma, and much more. If you like today's podcast, go onto your podcast app, subscribe, and leave us some feedback. For more information on Kineticense, the 3D functional movement analyzing technology, go to kineticense.com. Here's episode 8, The Oxygen Advantage for Practitioners and Movement Specialists with Patrick McKeown. Thank you for tuning in to Kineticast. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Today, we have the author of The Oxygen Advantage, Patrick McKeown. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome, Bo. So, uh, I was kind of talking to you about this a second ago, but I kind of want the listeners to hear it too. Um, how I came across The Oxygen Advantage. My uncle, who's a professor at a school into movement, the study of movement, has given me a book before, and I waited about three or four years to read it. Well, that book was Anatomy Trains, and I really missed out on that for not knowing that knowledge ahead of time. And this is something I didn't want to happen twice. So um, I got this book, I read it, and it was really the kind of the opposite of what I was always told about movement, or I'm sorry, about breathing, which was very interesting to me. And Patrick, uh, can you kind of tell us how you got uh, started with Buteco breathing and then how you came to write The Oxygen Advantage? Sure. Um, as life happens, a lot of things can happen by accident and direct you in a certain way. So it would have been, it wouldn't have been a career choice, put it that way from the start. Um, in actual fact, if somebody said I was going to work in this field, um, I would have said it, it's never going to happen. <laughs> but I had asthma all the way through childhood into my teenage years. And with that, when you have a breathing pattern disorder, such as asthma, you tend to have a stuffy nose. And because I had a stuffy nose, I was mouth breathing. And when you breathe through your open mouth, um, your sleep is affected. And also anxiety and stress levels are affected. Yeah. So it was something personal that was affecting me. And despite going to medical doctors for many, many years, no medical doctor, no healthcare professional ever told me, Patrick, breathe through your nose. And it's kind of ironic because I did have an operation on my nose in 1994. But after that, I was never told to breathe through it. So I still continued mouth breathing. Hmm. From 1994 until 1997, 98, and there I read an article in the newspaper, and it was about the importance of nose breathing. So I used a breath hold exercise to decongest my nose. I switched to nasal breathing. I was pretty tough because I was feeling air hunger. And um, when you've got years of breathing through an open mouth, you develop poor breathing patterns. So you know, when I first closed my mouth and started breathing through the nose, the nose is a smaller, smaller entry to the body, and as a result, it was feeling suffocated. Right. But uh, I persisted with it, practiced breathing exercises. I didn't really have a whole lot to go on um, because there wasn't really that much available at the time. But I had come across the nasal, the reduced breathing exercise to some degree, and I'd also come across the nose and blocking exercise. So, so yeah, I taped my mouth then within about two nights. And uh, I also had to wear a nasal dilator. So I had nasal dilators in my nose to keep my nose open. And I'd tape across my lips to keep my mouth closed. And I woke up and it was the best night's sleep ever. Wow. Um, I realized that, you know, I had 20 years of poor sleep, 20 years of fatigue, 20 years of poor concentration. And it affected academics, it affected stress levels. Um, and children, we know children with poor sleep. Yep. They have a huge instance of behavioral difficulties. Um, you know, it's really phenomenal because, Bo, nobody's talking about this. Yeah. Nobody that I'm, well, I won't say nobody, but I'm going to say that the vast majority of healthcare professionals talk and say nothing about the importance of functional breathing and breathing through the nose. 
it's just one of those things that is taken for granted. But all I'd say is this, when anybody comes in to me, you know, and sometimes people are coming in and I want to show them what they can be done, what can happen through your breathing. We can change body temperature in about three to four minutes just by slowing down breathing. Wow. We can activate the parasympathetic response. We can open up their nose and we can also make their lungs feel easier. And we can do that in a pretty short time. And I'm not sure, I'm not saying that this is the permanent, but all I'm saying is that if we can make such changes in a very brief period of time, well, what happens when you, you change your breathing permanently? You know, what happens right. when you adapt or you restore functional breathing patterns? Because we would have breathed um, perfectly as a, as a young baby, right. but we, we develop habits along the way. And mouth breathing, it now affects up to about 50% of studied children. And we don't have a statistic for, for adults. I know one, one study that I looked at, it, it suggested 17%, but we don't know how many people breathe through an open mouth during sleep. I'm sure many of your listeners wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. Right. And uh, if they do so, they're not likely to feel refreshed. And also the very simple thing is that mouth breathing is linked to the upper chest. You know, all you have to do is look down at your chest, take a breath through the mouth, and you'll see that mouth breathing activates the upper chest. It activates the sternocleidomastoid muscles, the accessory muscles, whereas nasal breathing is, is vital for full utilization of the diaphragm. And our diaphragm is our main breathing muscle that right. separates the chest from the abdomen. So people often talk about breathing deep and breathing abdominally, but they never talk about nasal breathing. You can't do one without the other. Right. And Patrick, you're saying it right there. Like I was going to say, a lot of practitioners, we really focus on diaphragmatic breathing. That's what we're, yes. what we're taught is diaphragmatic breathing, but you don't really get into the nasal breathing. You don't get into the pattern yes. that you should be breathing or how long the yeah. inhale is compared to exhale. And I think that's yes. really, really missed by a lot of practitioners because if they're going to be working with breathing, working with athletes, working with these guys that are trying to perform at a high level, that's going to be, that's going to immediately impact their performance levels too. Yeah, most definitely. You know, the breathlessness, both the onset and endurance of breathlessness and during physical exercise is determined by how do you breathe during the your every day. Right. You know, if you have an athlete who is spending time with their mouth open or using their upper chest or they've got relatively fast breathing, that athlete is going to have impaired breathing during physical performance. And I often use the analogy, look at athletes when they're doing a pre-press conference and they're during interview Mm -hmm. you know and try and pay attention to how fast are they breathing are they breathing using their upper chest are they running out of air well an athlete who is displaying dysfunctional breathing patterns is not going to perform as to the best of their ability during sports and it, it's fairly common you know breathing pattern disorders or dysfunctional breathing in the normal population according to a Cochrane review is 9.5 percent wow. but in asthma it increases to as high as 38 percent and with individuals subject to anxiety and panic disorder, it can increase to 70%. Jeez. So, you know, within the athlete population, um, you will have a certain cohort of athletes who are prone to, to exercise-induced asthma or exercise-induced bronchial constriction. But you'll also have a certain cohort of athletes prone to anxiety and panic disorder. And those are the ones that we really have to pay attention to. And it's not just that panic disorder is changing our breathing patterns. Yes, it does. And anxiety changes our breathing because when we get anxious, we breathe faster and more upper chest, but that feeds back into the condition. Right. And it's similar with asthma. You know, 
Um, if you think if your lungs are, are, are narrowed or, you know, they're becoming obstructed, you're feeling that you're not getting enough air, so you start to breathe harder. But as you breathe harder, then moisture is sucked out of the airways, the airways dry out. This in turn causes inflammation and narrowing of the airways. Then the athlete feels they're not getting enough air. They breathe harder, and as a result, it's a vicious circle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you said it all right there. That's what I was going to get in. Let's go ahead and uh, get into the science of it. I want to kind of talk about like how let's start with the co2 levels how it decreased the bond between the oxygen and the red blood cells the hemoglobin sure um you you spoke about you know earlier on dysfunctional breathing during rest right and we, we typically observe it by you know when you're looking at breathing there's three pillars to it one is the biochemistry of, of the breath and that's looking at carbon dioxide levels and carbon dioxide is a little bit controversial in terms of you can have athletes and you can have individuals with poor breathing but they can, they can have normal CO2. Hmm. Um, so we can't always rely on carbon dioxide as the determinant. Now, of course, when carbon dioxide levels are less than normal, you know, less than 35 millimeter of mercury pressure, I'd even say less than 37 millimeter of mercury pressure, the individual is hypocapnic, meaning that their CO2 levels in the blood is too low. Right. And when CO2 in the blood is too low, and by the way, CO2 in the blood is determined by CO2 in the lungs, and it's your breathing which determines the CO2 in, in the lungs. So, so ultimately, it's how much air do you breathe which determines CO2 in your blood. And if you breathe hard, and to give you an example, all it takes is 30 seconds of hard breathing to lower the CO2 in your blood by half. Wow. Now, so for instance, if somebody has normal carbon dioxide of 40 millimeter of mercury pressure, and if they lower it to 20 millimeter of mercury pressure in 30 seconds by breathing hard, we also know that for every one millimeter drop of CO2, it reduces blood flow to the brain by, by 2%. Hmm. So an individual who lowers their, their carbon dioxide levels, millimeters of mercury pressure by 20 millimeters, and that causes a reduction of blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. Wow, that's All great. it takes is 30 seconds of hard breathing to significantly um, you know, cause blood vessels to constrict and also for hemoglobin to hold on to oxygen. Now, I'm going to go off a little bit off on a sidetrack here because it's not just about the CO2 in the blood, but it's about the ventilatory response to CO2. Okay. When we move our muscles, we generate carbon dioxide. It's a normal byproduct from the, the conversion of oxygen and food into energy. Um, it's a normal byproduct of, you know, of me metabolism. And it's carbon dioxide that's the stimulus to breathe. So you can think of a working muscle it's producing CO2 in quite an abundance. And it's carbon dioxide that's stimulating breathing. If you have a strong response to the accumulation of CO2, it means that your breathing is going to be quite hard. Whereas if you have a light response to the buildup of CO2, it means that your breathing is going to be light. Now we use breath all the time. Um, and we, you know, we just use it on a practical session and a practical basis. But there's been many theorists back since 1975, even up to 2017 with tram back and uh, Messino in 19, uh, sorry, 2018. Yeah. And they're using breath toll time as a determinant of the sensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide. So any athlete who comes into me, I want to check their functional breathing patterns and they must have a breath toll time of at least over 25 seconds. And what I mean by breath toll time is, I mean, a normal breath in through the nose, a normal breath out through the nose, pinch the nose to stop breathing, and count how many seconds does it take 
until you feel the first step in the desire to breathe. So it has to be above at least above 25 seconds and the goal is 40 seconds. And if an athlete has a breath hold time of less than 25 seconds, it is suggestive of breathing pattern disorders. And this will translate into increased breathlessness during physical exercise. But also, as we spoke about with carbon dioxide, if you're breathing too hard, you're getting rid of too much CO2. This in turn causes blood vessels to constrict. And also the bond between the red blood cells and oxygen becomes stronger. Right. So ironically, you know, I was asked to do an article for a well-known fitness magazine, just mm-hmm. do a column for them. And, the, you know, the whole debate is, should we mouth breathe or should we nasal breathe during physical exercise? And I Googled it. Mm-hmm. And it, time and time again, it comes back, mouth breathing is the best way to breathe during physical exercise. But here's a few points in this one. Your mouth is activating your upper chest, but within the lungs, the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower lobes. So if you're breathing through your mouth, you're ventilating the upper part of the lungs, but the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower part. So there's a mismatch there. Hmm. So when you breathe through your nose, you carry nitric oxide from the nasal cavity into the lungs. And nitric oxide helps to redistribute the blood from the lower lobes of the lungs to the upper. But also nose breathing carries air from the upper lobes to the lower. So there's a better, better ventilation perfusion takes place. So nasal breathing, the biological significance of it is that it increases oxygen uptake by between 5 and 15% above mouth breathing. Wow. So here you have an athlete and it, they, you need to get as much oxygen, you know, to stay aerobically for as long as possible is ideal um, to get oxygen, increased oxygen delivery to the muscles. But if we're mouth breathing, we're breathing fast and shallow. But the best way to get oxygen uptake is deep but slow. Right. So a reduced respiratory rate and a deeper breath. So each breath is larger, but the number of breaths per minute is smaller. Um, and that's also taken into consideration something called dead space. And dead space is basically the air that remains in the nasal cavity. You know, with, with a breath that you take in, if you take in an average size breath as a half a litre, well, it, not, not all of the air that you take into your nose or mouth arrives to the small air sacs in the lungs because 150 milliliters of that is going to remain in dead space. Right. So this is air that we bring into the body, but doesn't actually reach the small air sacs. And if we're breathing fast and shallow, proportionately, um, a large amount of the air that we take per minute remains in dead space, so it doesn't reach the lungs anyway. Um, so just even on that point, you know, nasal breathing improves oxygen uptake. Um, it leads to more normal CO2 levels. And mm. also the fraction of expired oxygen is less during nasal breathing, meaning that the body has utilized oxygen more efficiently. So nasal breathing is light, efficient, driven by the diaphragm. And it's a superior way to breathe. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, it actually producing nitric oxide, which is another point that's in the book as well. Can you kind of speak yes. about a little more about nitric oxide? Yeah, nitric oxide is produced in different sites in the body, depending on, you know, you have endothelial nitric oxide, neuronal nitric oxide, etc. Um, but the nose is a good source of, of the gas nitric oxide, but mouth breathing isn't. For example, the, the parts per billion of nasal nitric oxide is 50 to 200 parts per billion. That's through the nose. Um, but through the mouth, it's only 10 parts per billion. Wow. So with each breath that we take through our nose, we carry nitric oxide into our lungs. And nitric oxide is a bronchodilator, meaning that it opens up the airways. 
it also sterilizes the incoming air and it also was a vasodilator meaning that it opens up blood vessels now nitric oxide it was only discovered on the exhale breath of a human being in 1991 so it's a relatively recent phenomena but the gas itself you know it improves ventilation perfusion it's actually yes as i spoke about it's nitric oxide that redistributes the blood from the lower lobes to the upper right. um so it's a really essential gas you know in terms of what it can do for breathing improving oxygen uptake and um, sterilization of the lungs and also of course bronchodilating it's keeping the lungs open um, so the smaller airways are tiny you know if you think of the the bronchial tracheal trees it's an amazing structure you've got one we've got the trachea subdivides then into two into two branches called bronchi yep. and then they subdivide into up to about 23 generations of smaller branches bronchioles and they get smaller and smaller progressively smaller and the area the area of contact between the capillaries the blood small blood vessels which which are surrounding the alveoli and the alveoli that area of contact is between 50 and 100 square meters now if we on a very hot day we protect our skin we're going to put on suntan lotion because we know that our skin is exposed to the atmosphere right. but your lungs are also exposed to the atmosphere and what's more the lungs are exposed to the atmosphere up to 50 times the area of the skin we look after our skin but we don't look after our lungs yeah so you also in the book with the nitric oxide does that release the epo then to the kidney for the bone marrow as well is that is that from so, the it's a slight, it's a, well, it's a different process, but uh, in terms of EPO, so there's two kind of pillars. Um, when, when I'm working with an athlete, I'm looking at their functional breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, and diaphragm is very important for movement and for motor control, for stabilization of the spine. A lot of athletes have, have lower back pain, right. and that can, that can be related to upper chest breathing. Um, it's very important that we have diaphragmatic breathing for, for core strength, etc. The pelvic so floor, functional yeah. breathing is important. Um, and then another aspect of what we do then is simulation of altitude training. So we use little device finger probe that you wear called a pulse oximeter. Mm -hmm. And that gives you feedback of the saturation of your peripheral blood vessels with oxygen. And normally it's 95 to 99 percent right and what we do is we we perform breath holding on the exhalation so it's a normal breath in through the nose normal breath out through the nose pinch the nose hold the nose and start walking and then walk faster jog and even jog faster into a sprint continuously holding your nose and then when you resume breathing you let go but you minimize your breathing for about six breaths mm -hmm. so you maintain that feeling of air hunger and with that we lower the blood oxygen saturation from say normal is about 97, 98%. And we lower it typically down to about 85%, but sometimes we go lower. And that's severe hypoxia. In yeah. other words, we're able to expose the body to intermittent hypoxic um, training. And this is causing adaptations because when the kidneys become hypoxic, uh, the, the hormone EPO or retropoietin is synthesized and EPO then, it's a messenger, so basically it sends a message to the bone marrow to, to mature more red blood cells. And another factor that takes place is splenic contraction. So as you do a strong breath hold, our spleen, which is our blood bank, and it contains about 8% of our red blood cells, that contracts and it releases more blood into circulation. So that effect lasts for about one hour. You know, if you do five strong breath holds, 
you will have a splenic contraction probably of about 20%, it seems to be what the studies are, are showing. So 20% of an increase of red blood cells, but the quality of the red blood cells in the spleen is very high. It's yeah. 80% hematocrit versus, you know, if you have a typically a male athlete, it's between 40 to 40 to 50% is their hematocrit, or a female is 36 to 44%. So the, this, the hematocrit, the quality of the red blood cells in the spleen, um, it, you know, it's really high quality and red tolling is causing the spleen to release red, extra red blood cells into circulation and also increasing and, and synthesizing erythropoietin EPO. Yeah, wow, that's great. We talked kind of about the science and everything behind it. Now, um, I want to kind of get into the facial structure changes and yes. how, how you're going to start to see things like that. Yeah, you know, the facial structure and mouth breathing, this has been debated in dentistry since 1909. Um, if you go into Google and if you put in dental cosmos, mouth breathing, you will see papers that dentists have been aware about this. And they'll talk about the child is dull and, you know, unexpressionless, the chin is receded, the teeth are crooked and overcrowded, and the, the face is flash and... Yeah. Uh, you know, so what is happening here? Well, this it's the position of our tongue which helps to drive the growth of the face. And ideally with nose breathing, our tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth. Our tongue is U-shaped and the top jaw, which is the maxilla, is shaped by the shape of the tongue. Now, with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth and with the pressures exerted by the tongue, the shape of the top jaw becomes wide and U-shaped so there's plenty of room for teeth and not crooked teeth. Yeah. Conversely, as I said, 50, up to 50% of studied children have their mouths hanging open. And if, your mouth, if you're breathing through your mouth, you're not able to have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. So the tongue is midway or on the floor of the mouth. And as a result, then the, the face sinks downwards. So the face becomes more narrow, teeth are crooked, but we don't get the forward growth of the jaws. And this is the key because our airway is dependent on forward growth of the jaws. If you look at the jaws of elite athletes and mm. look at the facial structure of elite athletes, generally these guys and girls, they'll have a very good development of the face because if you have good development of the face, you've got a good airway. Yeah. So, and a good airway is just the size of your tongue. You know, it's 1.2 centimeters. So we don't have a lot of room for error. My jaws are set back. My nose is crooked. My maxilla is set back. My mandible is set back. So my airway is compromised. So anatomically, I'd never be an athlete and I'd never be capable of being an athlete. Hmm. But this is something that we really need to pay attention to because even when you go to orthodontists, and when I'm talking about orthodontists, there are exceptions to the rule. And there are some tremendous orthodontists in the United States. Right. Dr. William Hang in California, uh, James Bronson in Washington, and there's there's Kevin Boyd from Chicago. There's there's orthodontists, um, you know, that we've we've been involved with over the years, and they have such a tremendous recognition of airway. And then you've got other orthodontists that don't fully understand the airway, because if you have an individual, uh, a teenager, and if two or four teeth are extracted. Well, if the teeth are extracted and if the jaws are retracted back into the face, it means that the airway is going to be smaller. 
So this individual then is at high risk of obstructive sleep apnea for the rest of their life. So it's really important, not just for athletic ability, not just for, for facial aesthetics, um, but for sleep, because yeah. if sleep is compromised, um, an obstructive sleep apnea is a relatively common you know, phenomenon, especially as we get older. It affects 27% of females over 50 years of age and up to 43% of males. So, you know, one, almost one in two male between the ages of 50 and 69 years of age are at high risk of obstructive sleep apnea. And oh. it shortens life expectancy. It puts a tremendous pressure on the heart. And um, it's linked to different conditions, including dementia, cancer, stroke, heart attack. Um, so it's one of those common diseases of civilization. And how we spend our time breathing as children is going to influence whether we have that for the rest of our life. And also, of course, orthodontic treatment. If they have extractions, if there are retractions of the face and the airway is compromised and this child will grow into an adult with increased risk of sleep apnea for the rest of their life. This would also uh, kind of make forward head posture more of a problem as well, right? Trying to increase breathing yes. there. So the tech yes. neck, everything going in with... A lot of the, you're talking yes. about younger people already, they're already on their phones and tablets and everything going down into yes. it. Yes. And they're going to have to try yeah. to breathe harder. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's just going to make, as a chiropractor, it's going to make my job harder too. Absolutely. Um, and forward head posture is more common than mouth breathing. You know, the respiratory biomechanics are changed. Yeah. Um, and when there's forward head posture, Brooks is, bruxing is increasing. So individuals grinding their teeth during sleep, you know, and forward head posture, it seems to be happening as a compensatory mechanism and um, that when the mouth is open and the individual is breathing through the mouth, the tongue is in a low resting posture. As a result, then the tongue is falling into the airway. Yeah. So one way is to help push the head forward um, in order to, to make to take air in, into the airway, because ultimately breathing is key. You know, breathing is king and airway trumps everything. Yeah. And anything else can be sacrificed to maintain breathing. Um, and forward head posture is one of those sacrifices. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy just to see the correlation of that. And especially with the young people that we're talking about, because yes. they're the ones that have, are having the worst posture nowadays. They have the worst posture, yeah. they have the worst yeah. forward head posture, and everything they do puts, perpetuates it and puts them back into that position. Yes. Yeah. I think society really has to wake up um, to the use of texting, to the use of mobile phones, to the use of social media. It's not just forward head posture, it's the brain, it's the mind, it's anxiety. Um, I think we really have a big problem on our hands here, you know, that the mind is, is being trained. And I know I'm going off topic, no, but I think it's, it's worth talking about it when, when, when it's committed to conversation. Our mind and our ability to focus is instrumental to achieve any quality of work and also to communicate. You know, nowadays you'll see youngsters, they're not even talking to each other. They're looking into phones. So if we have lost the art of communication, we've lost the art of building up relationships and um, relationships between male and female. Um, you know, what's going to go virtual and what's not going to go virtual? And, mm -hmm. you know, the survival of the human race, it really depends on our ability to relate to each other. Because if we have a problem, you know, problems come into our lives, we need to be able to communicate and we need to have these relationships with other, other individuals that we can resort to help when we need to. Yep. But it seems now that, you know, there's a whole civilization that's growing around that the communication 
is on is on Facebook. And that's good for Facebook shareholders, but it's not good for the kids and teenagers and young adults of today. No, and I mean, it's just perpetuating disease processes and systemic processes a lot. We talk about that a yes. lot on this podcast, just just really uh-huh. basically talking about movement and how the yes. lack of movement is going in, but it goes straight to communication. Most people that aren't communicating are usually locking themselves in a room or getting onto a screen, getting into a, some type of screen, and then they're not yes. moving. They're locking down. They're not breathing right. Then that's, again, perpetuating systemic disease. So that's yeah, something yeah. we have to... Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Since we're on this tub, uh, kind of off topic, um, I had a, a doc, a friend of mine that I sh- had read this book as well, and he wanted me to ask, if you don't mind, have you had any sure. success improving cognitive function with geriatrics that have degenerative disease processes like dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's? No, not not straight off, and we we haven't put it out there. I haven't used it specifically. Like traditionally, most of my work was with poor people with with asthma then people will obstructive sleep apnea, but there could be an indirect connection there. It was like a question that came in to me fairly recently. Is there a connection between mouth breathing and dementia? Right. And I said, I'm not aware of that link, but I am aware of this. There is a connection between mouth breathing and increased risk of sleep apnea. And there is a, there is a link between increased risk of sleep apnea and dementia. So to give you an example, um, we use paper tape across the lips. And one Taiwanese study, which put paper tape to the, to, to the test back in 2015, it was published, and it showed that the AHI index reduced by 33% as a result of getting the lips closed. Another paper by Fitzpatrick showed that the AHI across the night, it reduced from 43 events per hour to 1.5 um, as a result of nasal breathing. Stanford researchers have recently conducted this study, which hasn't been published, but they had individuals, um, they had their noses obstructed for 10 days to force them to breathe through an open mouth Mm -hmm. for 10 days, both during wakefulness and also during sleep. And it was their sleep which was impacted the most. Dr. Christian Guimano, he also is a Stanford medical doctor, French doctor originally. And in the 1970s, he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. He also helped develop the apnea hypopnea index, which is the gold standard of measurement of sleep apnea. And he's written, which I can send on to you, so you can send them on to your, your doctor friend. For sure. He's written papers on the importance, the critical importance of nasal breathing during sleep, both during wakefulness and also during sleep. So here we have the top sleep doctor in the world. And I've, I've spoken at a number of conferences, and he also has spoken at the same conferences and I've heard them time and time again, the critical importance of breathing through the nose during sleep. So yes, there could be a link between mouth breathing, aggravating sleep disorder breathing, such as sleep apnea, and the link between sleep apnea and increasing the risk of dementia. Yeah, that's really cool. And his, Dr. Zach Weeks was the doc that actually had me ask that. Um, and uh-huh. he had to get a little shout out. He would love your answer too. He's very analytical about it. So he likes to have all of his studies and you cited just amount enough for him. So he's going to be really happy with that. <laughs> I'll send you one of those papers. Um, and any of your listeners will be able to find them. You know, if you, Dr. Guimano, Dr. Christian Guimano, okay. nasal breathing, um, you know, functional breathing using the nose during sleep and you'll, you'll pull them up and PubMed. 
Yeah, for sure. So let's uh, let's continue. We're almost through. I want to talk a little more about athletic performance. So yes, um, the high altitude training that really interested me because there's a lot of like different face masks and different things that you can go out and do and try to yes. try to recreate this high altitude training. But you have a way to do this with just nasal breathing. Yes, well, we do breath holding. Um, in order to to make a claim that you can simulate altitude training, you you have to be able to show that you can lower your your blood oxygen saturation. When when the, the masks come out, by the way, we have our own mask as well. Okay. Um, so I'm not totally against them, but I am going to make one point of the mask. Masks themselves don't simulate altitude training, and we've tested many many masks here. We've had athletes running in them. I've tested them myself. You can, if you're wearing a mask, your, your blood oxygen saturation will drop down to about between 93, 92%. It's not hypoxic. So it's not enough to make a claim of simulation of altitude training. Okay. And if you look at it, these masks as well, you know, their branding has changed in the main players and um, because they realize now that, you know, that wasn't happening. So the masks are respiratory muscle training devices that you're breathing against resistance to add an extra load onto the diaphragm onto the intercostal muscles um which in which in turn is good because up to 50 percent of athletes are prone to diaphragmatic fatigue and if the diaphragm gets tired due to either high intensity training or long duration training blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm so as a result then the performance is going to slow down or cease so improving respiratory muscle strength is very important Right. But what I would also say is go for a jog with your mouth closed and breathe in and out through your nose because your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's two to three times out of the mouth. So in- inevitably, nasal breathers will have better diaphragmatic strength than mouth breathers. Now, if you have an athlete or an individual and if they've got very compromised nostrils like mine, due to years of mouth breathing, the ca- there can be a narrowing of the face. The nostrils are narrower you will have to use nasal dilators. And uh, you you know, you can use products, there's the turbine, I have no financial vested interest, by the way, mm-hmm. just I'll put it out there. Yeah. Um, a plastic device that you put into the nose and it's based on the cotton maneuver. So it's the same principle that if you put one finger either side of your nostrils, and if you just gently prise them apart, you're able to open up the nasal valve in order that more air comes into the nose. So somebody with a small nose, you know, they'll often feel very suffocated when they go for a jog with their mouth closed because their airway is too small. So you can open it up. But the other thing is your bolt score, which which we call, you know, it's the body oxygen level test, mm-hmm. the length of time that you can hold your breath for comfortably. If you've got a higher bolt score, your breathing is more efficient. So ultimately, it's about how much air do you require for a given work rate or a given intensity? You know, if you see an individual who's very unfit and they're walking down the street, they're on the sidewalk, you know, and you're hearing their breathing, this individual isn't doing much physical exercise, but yet they need a lot of air for that given amount of physical exercise. So what what I want to do with breathing is I want to change breathing patterns to reduce the ventilatory response to, to carbon dioxide, to reduce their breathlessness. So when an individual then does physical exercise, and it's regardless, they don't have to be an athlete. It's it's the guy who doesn't the guy who doesn't do exercise because they feel too breathless when they do it. Mm. I want to target these guys too, you know, because exercise should be enjoyable. We should enjoy it, but right. we will enjoy it when we have regular and controlled breathing. We don't enjoy exercise 
when the air hunger and the degree of breathless is, is much, you know, is disproportionate to the physical exercise. So we want to change that. So yeah, so the, the simulation of altitude training, it's, it's using breath holding, but use, use a pulse oximeter so that you can witness your SpO2 dropping. Yeah. You won't do it with nasal breathing. It takes a breath hold. And breath holding is only suitable if the female is pregnant or if you have individuals that no, they don't have high blood pressure or you know cardiovascular issues. If anybody has any serious medical complaints, don't do any strong breath holding. Okay. But for the vast majority of individuals in relatively good health that are doing physical exercise, bring some breath holds into your way of life because it's almost that you're, you're challenging your body to make adaptations. <coughs> and one of those adaptations, which is very interesting is we are deliberately reducing oxygen at the tissue level. And this is increasing how this is the hydrogen ion, therefore, that comes from the tissue isn't, isn't getting oxidized. So it, it associates with pyruvic acid to form lactic acid. And then lactic acid then is dissociating into lactate and hydrogen ion. So we're deliberately exposing the body to higher hyd hydrogen ion from the hypoxic response, but also during the breath hold, um, we're increasing CO2 in the blood. And the increase to CO2 in the blood will also increase hydrogen ion. So there's an increased hydrogen ion from the hypoxic effect and an increased hydrogen ion from the hypercaptic response. And this in turn will be increasing the buffering capacity. So it's thought that it's happening inside in the muscle, you know, in the muscle compartments, that the buffering capacity is increasing, which is delaying the release of, of acid into the blood. And this way we can improve anaerobic capacity. So we spoke earlier on about being able to improve aerobic capacity. Right. Uh, now there's some non-responders, by the way, and we don't know why. We've seen some athletes, their hematocrit have increased, and then some athletes, their hematocrit doesn't increase. But we, we, we don't just have one possibility when you do breathing training, because you're targeting different systems anyway. So if you have an athlete that's regularly measuring their, their blood count, it would be very interesting to see, yes, bring breath holding into your way of life. It's free. You can do it in your sitting room. Um, there's no there's no side effects once, of course, you don't do it excessively. You know, so I'd say do five relatively strong breath holds once or twice a day. You'd be perfectly fine. Don't hyperventilate before that. Um, I know people often ask the question about the Wim Hof technique, which, which is a good technique. Yep. But it is different to what we do because... Vim Hof would be involved in, say, hyperventilating for 30 breaths and then exhaling and holding the breath. But hyperventilation would get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is the alarm to breathe. So if you get rid of so much CO2 from your body, well, your body doesn't feel the need to take a breath. And as a result, then you can hold your breath for a lot longer. And because you can hold your breath for a lot longer, you're able to lower your blood oxygen saturation to more extreme. And if you, if you lower your blood oxygen saturation to below 60%, you're at risk of, of fainting. So that's why we don't, you know, we don't do extreme breath holding, but we do breath holding to achieve severe hypoxia. And that's all it takes to make adaptations, you know, in terms of simulation of altitude training. Yeah, I'm really actually glad you spoke about that too, because I had another doc uh, talk to me about it, and he was talking about the Vinhoff breathing as well. So it was cool to hear yes. you explain yeah. that. Um, also, you're talking about uh, building 
diaphragmatic strength and stability, right? So that's going to immediately yes. correlate to your pelvic floor and your core stability, which is yes. an interesting concept because then you're going through the nasal breathing and you're going through the breath holding to start to build strength in the diaphragm. If the diaphragm is where you're going to build your core stability and generate your power from as an athlete. That's a really, yes. really good thing to build strength on and be able to be really good at. Yes. Yep. The nose during wakefulness, the nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's two to three times that of the mouth. Now, the opposite happens during sleep. It's your mouth that imposes a resistance to two and a half times that of the nose. So the nose, by slowing down your breathing during wakefulness, is adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles. And this will help maintain diaphragm strength, but also the fact that you're using it. You know, you're, right. you're increasing lung volume by virtue of nasal breathing. Any of your listeners, just look down at when you're taking a breath, look down at your chest and take a few breaths into your mouth. And you'll see that mouth and chest breathing are linked and nose and, and diaphragmatic breathing are linked. Now, one paper by CFAC, they analyzed 18 articles. Well, they narrowed it down to 18 articles and they found a few, if any, articles that mouth breathing did not cause some mechanical disadvantage to breathing. Yeah. So mouth breathing is causing a mechanical disadvantage and that would be the second pillar of breathing. You know, I spoke at the very start, when we're looking at breathing, we're looking at three different things. One is the biochemistry of the breath. That's primarily looking at carbon dioxide. The second aspect is the biomechanics of breathing. Yes. Are you breathing using the upper chest or are you breathing more abdominally using your diaphragm? And the third aspect then is the psychophysiological aspect. And that's looking at a questionnaire called the Nijmegen questionnaire. Now, I have to say it's not an ideal questionnaire. And um, basically it asks you to rank your symptoms and to score them. And if you score over 23 out of 64, I think it is, it's suggestive that you have a breathing pattern disorder, hmm. but it's validated. So clinicians will use it, but from a practical point of view, I have to say some of the symptoms on it, I never see. Okay. And then there's other symptoms of breathing pattern disorders that I see quite often, and they're not included on the Nijmegen questionnaire. So I wouldn't say it's perfect, but at least it's out there. Yeah. Well, so Patrick, I got one more question for you before we sure. cut it off. Um, why, why do people get told to breathe deep then? Well, deep breathing is good. Well, okay. So I'm sorry. Uh, why do they, why do they tell them to <laughs> take in large breaths? Yes. Like, like the athlete, athlete side. Yeah. Sorry about that. We, we have this innate belief there that the more air you breathe, the more oxygen you get into the blood. And again, what I suggest is that if any of your listeners are getting pulse oximetry, put it on your finger and breathe normal and you'll see that your spo2 is normal we see people coming in with chronic fatigue people coming in with you know high stress high anxiety poor exercise performance and i look at their blood oxygen saturation and it's perfectly normal the problem is not the amount of oxygen in the blood they have plenty of oxygen in the blood the problem is that the oxygen isn't getting from the blood so easily to the cells so i'm more interested in how do we get the blood to deliver oxygen to the cells as opposed to the amount of oxygen in the blood in the first place? Yeah. Um, so there is a debate, there is a belief out there, you know, yoga studios, um, you hear it quite often, the importance of taking and filling your lungs full of air. You, you can't increase um, the amount of oxygen in your blood by taking heavy breaths. Now, I'll just quantify this. Okay. Oxygen is carried in the blood two ways. 98% of it is carried by hemoglobin. 
that will be already almost fully saturated. So if you take 30 big breaths, you're not going to increase the, the saturation of hemoglobin by, um, with oxygen. And hemoglobin carries 98% of your oxygen. 2% of your oxygen is dissolved directly in the blood. If you take big breaths, you will increase the amount of oxygen that's dissolved directly in the blood, but only a small amount of oxygen is carried in the blood. So in entirety, big breaths don't bring in more oxygen. You know, they don't increase right. your SpO2, but it does involve getting rid of too much carbon dioxide. And as a result, the available oxygen in the blood doesn't get released so readily to the cells. So if your goal is to increase oxygen delivery to the cells, you need to be thinking about carbon dioxide and not just oxygen. So it's about slowing down the breath and maybe your listeners have a go at it, you know, yeah. put one hand on their chest, one hand just above their navel and focus on the airflow coming in and out of the nose and start just gently slowing down the speed of the air coming into the nose and at the top of the breath, a really passive, you know, relaxed, gentle, slow breath out. So the ratio of the breath out should be about 1.5 to 1. So in other words, the breath in is 1 and the breath out 1.5 times the breath in. So the breath in during rest is active and the breath out is passive. And then on the next breath, they're really slowing down their breathing. And slowing down your breathing, you know, almost that there's hardly any air coming into your nose. So at this point, you might be breathing a little bit shallow. doesn't matter. It, the whole aim is to create air hunger. And air hunger tells you that carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases, your blood vessels dilate. So individuals with cold hands, for example, we would see peripheral vasoconstriction. It's due to overbreathing. Cold feet the same. So the human being, we've got 100,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body, and we can influence them through our breathing. It's about breathing slow, quiet, and light. Yeah. using the diaphragm and in and out through the nose. And with that, you can you can impact your circulation and your airways. That's awesome, man. Now, honestly, most of the listeners do have the pole socks because we have to get them as interns. They're going through school. So we've all got one laying around somewhere to use so we can all try it. Great, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because we, we experiment with them with our students coming in. You know, wear the pole sock. Um, you're, you're breathing very normal. Just breathe normal. You'll see that your SpO2 is 98%. Take 20 big breaths. Can you increase it? Yeah. Well, so, and you Can also you increase your SpO2. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, you, you have a, you do classes as well to where you can do become an oxygen advantage trainer as well. Correct. Yes, we do. We do instructor training throughout the world. And also we do a lot of it is online. Um, because it got to a stage that, you know, I was getting booked out for about 14, 15 months in advance. So I switched to doing a course. We do instructor training oxygen advantage online every three months, every four months. And we're joined then from people around the world and they sit with us live online webinars and we go through all of the material. So it's, we do it by Zoom, okay. which, is, which is quite a useful um, medium. And we've also, we've also done athlete workshops. So athletes sign in for two hours. Um, so yeah, there's different, different products there that, you know, I think it's great that breathing is really getting attention now that it's getting out there. Yeah. I think a lot of the time people kind of overlooked it. They did seeing that well individuals breathe, so why change it? Well, you know, we, we pick up poor breathing patterns and I think that's going to increase. You, you touched on it earlier on. Um again, you know, the overuse our, our lifestyles have changed and yeah. breathing gets impacted by that. 
Well, I mean, I'm talking to uh, when I was talking to Dr. Nick Askey, he he we talked about taking the shoes and taking socks off and looking at feet. But if we're just going to specifically look at feet, we need to specifically look at the face and we need to look at the breathing pattern as well. So I think that's the big key for our our practitioners that are listening right now. So, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. We appreciate all the information. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share some stuff in the notes on the podcast. But uh, Mm -hmm. thank you for joining us again. You're very welcome, Bo. Um, Great conversation. Thanks very much. Yes, sir. Again, thank you for listening to Episode 8 with Patrick McKeown. Patrick talked about the right ways to breathe for athletes and just for general health altogether. We are supposed to get people to breathe light to breathe right, but how do we get them to physically do that? I believe there's a lot of power in real-time biofeedback, so if someone can watch themselves do something, they can learn it five times faster. I've also verified this using it to teach patients how to hip hinge on the functional module on Kinetisense. This is basically an open frame module where I can teach anyone any movement and show them the measurements of their body and lateral tilts in real time, as well as the transverse plane, which is the rotational plane. My patients were able to learn things much faster being able to visualize themselves in three planes of motion. And then we can also train diaphragmatic breathing and breathing light to breathe right with this functional module as well. For more information on Kineticense, visit kineticense.com and schedule your free online demo. On the next episode, we have Alex Graham, strength and conditioning coach at the Alberta Sport Development Center. She will be on to speak about how she measures functional fatigue in athletes using the Kineticense Advanced Movement Screen, or CAMS. This is a newer theory on a topic that affects everyone that moves. I'm your host, Bo Sauls, and let's keep learning about movement, performance, and rehab together. <laughs>